British Spy Stories, Season 1 Spy or Traitor? Episode 5 A London dawn lingers across the sky as Gabrielle gets back to the safe house just before 9am the next day. She packs her bag and takes the tube to Heathrow Terminal 5, buys a ticket and boards the flight immediately. Russell's airport is bathed in sunshine as the plane swings round to make the final descent. She takes a cab to Rue Souveraine in the centre of the city. It is like a hundred other roads in Brussels, with grand houses from La Belle Epoque lining either side. She finds the building she needs and pushes at a large door which leads to a roofless square with steps to the flats above. She finds the staircase to number 12, silently makes her way up to the second floor, and uses skeleton keys to let herself in through the front door. The sitting room has a panoramic view of Brussels. Rooftops stretch out northwest to the Parc du Saint-Contenaire. Gabrielle walks through the whole place with her handgun drawn to check that nobody is sleeping late, but she is alone. She flicks through some paper files next to a small rosewood desk that sits squarely across one of the windows, but there's nothing there of interest. The owner of the flat won't be home for a few hours, she reckons, so she settles into a chair to wait for his return. At some stage, she raids the fridge to see if there is any food and takes meat and cheese, then sits back down. After last night, she is tired and closes her eyes. Gabby is woken by the sound of the front door opening. The chair she is in has a high back and she is invisible to whoever is coming in. She waits. A man arrives and makes his way into the kitchen. He starts to make coffee, and she gets up silently from her hiding position. She forgot about the food plate in her lap, and it clatters to the floor. The man turns and draws a handgun. Before he has made one step to investigate the sound, she has raised her Smith & Wesson to his temple. Long time, Jonas she says. Gabrielle, it has been a very long time. What brings you to the world's greatest city? We're not in London, Jonas, but I'll let it pass. Put the gun on the floor. He does so. Sit down in the chair, by the desk. Jonas Geelan steps across the room with his hands showing, and sits down. What can I do for you? Gabby, he says calmly. She keeps the gun trained on him. Information, Agent Geelan. Information about an op that your GIS security team carried out a few days ago. Any particular operation? he asks. He smiles, then so does she. I need you to take me to your HQ, and we're going to do some research together. You want to come with me to Rue Royale? Oui, she replies. 
Why would I do this, Gabby? You can't just walk into the headquarters of the Belgian security service. You're going to do this because I know that you're running an unofficial double agent in London. And I know her name. And I know you wouldn't want that to get out because London and Brussels would be very annoyed. I don't know anything about a double agent. He holds her gaze. How dull, she says. I thought you'd be more of a man about this. Do I have to show you the evidence? I don't know anything about a double agent, he repeats, and blinks slowly. She reaches into her jacket, pulls out a sheet of paper and unfolds it. Names, dates, locations, she says, holding the paper in the air so that he can read it. He is silent for five seconds. Okay, he murmurs eventually. That's my boy. The master copy of the information on this piece of paper is in a letter that has already been posted to the Director-General of your security service and is on the back of a motorbike coming from Berlin, she says. It will take that bike about two hours to arrive. That's how long we've got to get the information. The motorcyclist will call my mobile when he arrives at the address to check whether he should deliver the letter or not. No answer from me will mean he will deliver the letter. And if I answer, I can tell him to go ahead or stop. That is the only way he will abort the delivery. Also, just in case you're wondering, the motorcyclist is a field agent from MI6, armed and with orders to kill on sight if he is attacked or stopped en route. She lowers the gun. Shall we go? They take a cab to the GISS building and emerge from the lifts on the fourth floor. Jonas lets Gabrielle into his office and they sit in front of the computer. Give me the keyboard, says Gabby, and he moves it over. Stand over there, she says, typing a string of characters in. She hits enter and a list of files comes up on the screen. If you tell me what you're looking, no need for you to know anything more. What does the suffix GE26H mean? It's a hard disk location downstairs. Gerlain Archive Room, Room 26, Location H. Right, so LA83D is another archive room? Labord, he replies, nodding. She writes down the two references. Let's go to the archive. They take the stairs to the basement and enter a labyrinth of connected rooms crammed full of paper files for the old cases and hard disk storage devices for the new ones. They pass three rooms before they arrive at Labor. Here, he says. They go down one of the long rows of shelving lined with eight-foot-high cabinets. Section 83 is on the corner. Location D, she says under her breath. She reaches out to pull out the drive. At that moment, he grabs her arm and twists it behind her back, pinning her face against the cabinet. 
Gabby's body is more athletic than Geelan's, and she could get out of the hold, but refrains. Don't be stupid, Jonas. Be quiet. You don't want to throw away a twenty-year career, she says gently. You'd be ruined, and relations with London screwed for a generation. I can't be seen to leak this information, he whispers. The file access is all on my security profile. I don't need the whole file. I need to look at them and copy certain things. She whispers back. They stand locked in the position for a few seconds. Then he relaxes. Just copies, he murmurs, his eyes showing defeat. They find the other location as well, then drop the drives into a reader terminal in one corner of the archive. She finds the content she needs and takes pictures with her phone from the terminal screen, then they replace the devices in their shelf positions, and he escorts her to reception. Thank you, Jonas, she says. He says nothing, and swipes his key card on the exit gate to let her out. She walks through the revolving doors, and disappears into the crowds, walking along the street outside. Lawton walks up Dean Street in London's Soho district from where the taxi dropped him. This area always seems to be busy, no matter the time of day or night. Despite his nervousness about getting caught as a double agent and his feeling of tiredness with it all, he is oddly proud of both his two spying careers. He had been recruited as a Russian agent at Oxford in the early 1990s, soon after the old Soviet KGB had morphed into the Russian SVR intelligence service. He studied Russian and Slavonic culture as an undergraduate, and, in his mind, had simply fallen in love with Russia and all she stood for. The SVR had adapted their recruitment approaches in the 1990s to target both Russians living in the UK and British nationals with a love of the mother country. After a first late-night conversation in a pub in Oxford with a man who he never saw again, various meetings were set up with increasingly senior Russian operatives. Covert visits to Moscow followed, all arranged through his Russian handler, Ivan. He can't believe that the Russian security services chose such an archetypal cover name. After university, Lawton easily got a job in the Home Office and made an application to the Foreign and Commonwealth Office at the behest of Ivan when he was 24. Once inside the FCO, with his Oxbridge background and cut-glass accent, it had not been difficult for Lawton to speed through the levels of seniority. He joined MI5 as a higher executive officer and was a key part in the Northern Ireland operations, for which he was promoted. He moved to MI6 the following year. He knows that Moscow likes to think they have not demanded a great deal from him. They encouraged him to live like a normal man, 
and he met Caroline in his early thirties. Neither of them wanted children, and Linny, as he calls her, is a successful barrister in the inns of court. They travelled to New York and Bali to celebrate her becoming Queen's Counsel, as the job was called then. They live happily in Highgate, overlooking Hampstead Heath. His biggest regret is that Linny knows nothing of his Moscow connections. He has spent a lifetime lying to the woman he loves so much that he would lay down his own life to save hers. Laying down his life is not so far-fetched an outcome, he thinks. It would put an end to the strain of the pretense and the deaths that he has been responsible for. The men and women from MI6 who he has leaked information about and so put them in danger. Moscow had completed the task and killed many of them. A vision of another Stephen flashes momentarily across his mind. The one who declined the offer of a drink in Oxford. The one who followed a career in journalism and then as a writer. The one who has not been lying to Linney. For decades. He turns right into Quo Vardis, a restaurant where he has met Ivan many times over the years. Ivan is sitting in the corner just as he always is. Hello, Ivan. Petrov, says the Russian, using Lawton's SVR codename. I ordered sea bass for us. I know you like it. Lawton sits. How are things? He says. Interesting activities going on that you don't need to know about, but good for Russia. How long have we known each other, Ivan? Many years, Petrov. For all those years, I have done everything that you asked of me, haven't I? You have, Petrov. A moment's silence languishes between the two men. I want to stop, Ivan, says Lawton without emotion. I have had enough. The Russian is silent for a few moments. I'm not sure what to say, you see. There isn't a way to stop. He pauses, selecting the right words. This is a job for life. Nevertheless, I want to stop. I want you to arrange it. Go on holiday with that beautiful wife of yours. Keep Caroline out of this. You need a rest. I need to stop, Ivan. Lawton is dead serious now. Did you hear me? I heard, says Ivan. But they won't like it. Tell Moscow that they have had many years of loyalty. Lawton drops his voice. And now that is coming to an end. I'll do one more op. That's it. Then it must stop. All right, says the Russian, holding up his palms to Lawton. I will tell them. One more operation. I need to go, says Lawton. The sea bass, you have to stay for that. Give it to your contacts in Moscow, Ivan. Lawton gets up 
and strides out of the restaurant. The Novotel in Brussels sits on the Rue de la Vierge Noire. Gabby registers under a cover name. She takes a cab to the narrow back streets around the east of the city, where there are fewer tourists and EU civil servants. She doesn't want to be seen, just yet. She finds a little French restaurant, and only then realises how hungry she is. When she emerges, the pavements are wet, but the night is warm. She decides to walk back to the hotel. The Cathedral of St. Michael and St. Judela is silhouetted against the darkening sky as she crosses the giant courtyard in front of the building. From one corner of the square comes the whine of a moped. Gabrielle notices it when it is forty feet away and heading straight towards her. There are two people on the machine. The rear passenger has a baseball bat hanging down beside him. It moves in quickly until it is only feet away. The passenger lifts the bat and swings at her legs. She dodges and starts to run across the cobbles in the direction of the cathedral's main doors. The bike circles and they come again, faster this time. She pulls out her handgun and the driver swerves away. The bike skids on the cobbles and the whole thing slides sideways. The two riders roll, and she can see that they are young. The boy with the bat gets up and faces her. The driver draws out a knife from his back pocket, and comes for her too. The first man swings at her body, and hits her in the ribs. She bends with the impact, and has no time to recover. She can see the knife glint in the moonlight, as it comes down on her shoulder. She kicks the guy with the bat, and he falls to his knees. She takes a step back and kicks again. This time, his grip on the bat loosens, and it clatters away on the cobbles. She kicks a third time and at his head, and he falls with the congealed thud. The knife man swings for her. She pushes the blade up and away to the right, twists his arm back, and spins him to the ground. She pushes the barrel of her Smith & Wesson into his face. Who sent you? She says in French. He groans. I will kill you, if needs be. Her voice is dead calm. Who was it? For two seconds she pushes him down on the ground. Ulrich, says the boy eventually. Sebastian Ulrich, she says. He grunts. Were you supposed to kill me? He nods. Go and tell him, she thinks for a second. Go and tell him that I'm not scared. He won't win, she says, then stands up and walks off. In the security of her hotel room, she lays on the bed. Sebastian Ulrich, she knows. Ex-Russian military. He made several million from the sale of state assets after Perestroika. Now, he is one of the big players in arms sales to the Middle East, and has connections to illegal migration into Europe. A violent man. He personally shot his number two after the guy did a deal, without Ulrich knowing it. 
Gabby's question is, why would Ulrich target her? She flicks back through her memories, and where her path and Ulrich's could have crossed. She has never met him, but his tentacles of crime spread far and wide across Europe. She may have unconsciously upset one of his plans. She will need to find out, as having a contract out on her from Ulrich will mean that other assassins will come calling. The two at the cathedral were amateurs, but Ulrich has the money to fund some of the best. Her mind is racing and keeps her awake. After too long her brain finally lets her fall asleep, but only after she has decided that her next step must be to find Ulrich before he finds her.